I think Trump is inadvertently trolling himself on a thriller. <laughs> Hi, everybody, and welcome to How Music Charts, the podcast where we explore the dance between interpreting data and making creative decisions in the music business every day. I'm your co-host, Rutger, and you'll hear from our other co-host, Jason, very soon. This podcast is owned and operated by Chartmetric, a music data company that connects numbers to narratives to help professionals leverage the power of music. Remember, any opinions or views expressed by our guests or the co-hosts on this podcast are theirs alone and do not in any way constitute the opinions or views of any company they work for. To preserve a tone of earnest dialogue and protect our guests, we will refrain from using names of any kind, personal, company, or otherwise, unless our guests have granted us explicit permission to do so. On this episode, we continue our conversation with DFSB Collective President and Korean music industry expert, Bernie Cho, who discusses globalization, transmedia marketing, a post-TikTok world, and yes, Donald Trump's Triller account. If you want to get a primer on Bernie's story, the K-pop business model, and what exactly a hot city matrix is, check out part one of this two-part series. For now, please welcome Bernie Cho back to the How Music Charts podcast for Secrets of K-Pop and the Korean Music Industry, part two. I think this was in the Music Ally piece about globalization. Yes. So this idea of, you know, thinking globally, but acting locally, so to speak, Mm -hmm. when it comes to kind of an artist strategy. What does... Can you talk a little bit about that and your views on it and, you know, with streaming kind of connecting everyone at once and the second you hit upload, if you're an artist, you know, you're instantly global. What does effective marketing when it comes to like a, a globalization kind of mindset look like and what kind of skill sets are needed? What kind of team would be needed if you can you know, form one? What does that look like um, in a practical sense? With globalization, it's not one simple formula. Um, I try to focus on on three key elements and key aspects of globalization, uh, partially because people have such short attention spans. If I keep it to three, it makes it easier for people to swallow and uh, absorb. But the three things that um, helps uh, Korean music not just be local but global, and hence the word globalization, is number one, first and foremost, the thing that you least suspect that's the least sexy is actually something as mundane as metadata. Korean songs often have Korean and English titles side by side next to each other so that whether you're a local or whether you're from overseas, you can easily discover, easily search, easily appreciate, easily buy and easily stream Korean music because you can find it easily, whether you're Korean or non-Korean. And for me, this bilingual metadata um, system was something from the get-go when I started doing export of Korean music back in 2009, 2010. Uh, Because when I worked at MTV, um, this idea of having not just Korean, but Asian music go regional, go global, was often hindered and handicapped by language not just lyrically, but just how you present the song titles. And it was one of those things where you had really three options, bad, worse, and horrible. Bad being you just have it in the local language only. And if you can't read Chinese or Korean and Japanese, you're shit out of luck. Option two is 
God forbid, you phoneticize the Asian word into English. So, for instance, I love you, saranghe. You would spell it S-A-R-A-N-G-H-E. So nobody in the native language or overseas has any idea what that word is. And then option three is you strip out the Asian language and you just go with the straight English translation. I love you. Some people might find it overseas, but the local fans will have no clue what that translation could be, might be. And so it's just an absolute hot mess. And as I was traveling, you know, going back and forth and uh, trying to figure out how to make this work, I reached out to the overseas K-pop fan sites and, um, you know, whether it was all K-pop or Soompi.com. And then my actually best feedback came from a Swedish woman who was a big K-pop fan in Sweden, of all places. And uh, her name, I'm going to give her a shout out, is uh, Anna Lindgren. Uh, she ran a site called Indiful Rock. I don't know if it's still running, but she loved Korean indie music and knew more about the back alleys of Seoul's indie music scene than I did. And I live in Seoul. And she <laughs> figured this all out from from Sweden. And, you know, I asked a lot of these tastemakers and just straight up overseas fans of K-pop, hey, what's your biggest frustration trying to find out more information about your favorite artists and favorite songs? And time and time again, the first thing that came up was language. So what we did is we tested different metadata formats, the information, music information, um, whether it's the song title, album title, and the artist's name. And when I presented them with the format of Korean language and English translation side by side, it clicked. They're like, oh, I get it. I like it. We can find the music that we want. And I was like, great. And then I realized the answer was in my face the whole time. I just didn't realize it and I didn't look. And what I mean by that was whenever I was traveling overseas, I look at the airport signs. And often when you travel anywhere in Asia, it's the local Asian language and then English side by side. And I go to Starbucks anywhere I go, anywhere in the world, because it's just safe. But then I realize when I go to Starbucks in Japan, Korea, China, Singapore, wow, anywhere in Asia, I realized oh my God, if I go to Starbucks, I can order the coffee because I can read the menu. And the reason being local Asian language and English side by side. So when I looked at the Starbucks menu, uh, this light went off in my head, ding. This is what it takes to make bucks for my stars, bilingual metadata. So right from the get-go, when we started, I started and my company started exporting Korean music and others in the industry also caught on to it and figured it out. Bilingual metadata is what made Korean music accessible and exportable. Simple to find, simple to access, simple to discover. So that's number one. That's a long answer. But number <laughs> two is a little shorter. K-pop is uh, multicultural and multilingual. Um, in many ways, uh, K-pop is no longer Korean. It's become Asian pop. And what I mean by that is if you look at the makeup of some of the most popular Korean boy bands, girl bands, indie bands, live bands, um, there's a pattern in the sense when you look at the song structure, um, English is often incorporated, be it in the lyric, definitely in the rap, but often in the chorus because English is, and I don't know why they use this term, the lingua franca. It's the universal language that everybody around the world somehow kind of sort of understands. But if you realize for a lot of parts in the world where English is not the first language, uh, for a kid in Vienna to Vietnam, to Vladivostok, 
when they hear a K-pop song with some English in it, to them, it's really no different than listening to a UK pop song or a US pop song. That's all in English to them. It's just a nice sounding song with a few easy English words or phrases that they can recognize. So multilingual lyrics. And then more importantly, the members are often multicultural. Many of them either lived or studied overseas. And if you look at the top K-pop bands right now, um, many of them, it's become not just the exception, but really the rule to have non-Korean members in the in the acts. And a lot of it has to do with not only are they obviously talented uh, and many of them are obviously bilingual or trilingual. They speak their native language as well as English, as well as Korean. Um, But it's an amazing marketing and promotional um, advantage because, for instance, a K-pop act will often have, you know, the overseas Korean English speaking member who can do interviews in English. They'll often have the English speaking overseas Chinese member who could kick it in Chinese and in English. And, you know, now they have, you know, um, members from Southeast Asia who can speak English, who can speak Korean and more importantly, speak their local language. Um, For instance, you know, two of the biggest superstars in Korea is Lisa from Blackpink and Nikun from from uh, 2PM. They're both Thai. And I mean, they're superstars in Korea, but they're like deities in thailand and um and so these days when i look at k-pop it feels less and less korean and more and more asian and um so yeah this lingua franca of multicultural multilingual um artists and 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 um, music works is key um and then the third thing that definitely helps is uh social media uh, in a lot of Asian markets, um, you know, be it Japan, be it in China, and it used to be to some degree in Korea, a lot of the social media networks were homegrown solutions that were only catered to homegrown markets, whether it's the messaging or the social media or whatnot. And so for a lot of foreign overseas international fans, it wasn't easy to discover um, and to access information. Um, And one of the things that Korean artists did early on was not only were they using the homegrown solutions, but they went big on the international platforms, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, and now Instagram, TikTok, Triller, whatever else is the new thing. And I think that Koreans were very much early adopters of these international platforms, uh, more so than possibly maybe their Asian counterparts. And so that I think has helped um, increase the viability and um, success of K-pop going global. Man, this is kind of brain fart on my end. But the fourth thing that helps sort of Korea be exportable, um, and and you alluded to it as well, is collaborations. Um, One of the other things that uh, helps international artists find success in Korea is actually high-profile collaborations with top Korean artists. I think any Western artist that collaborated with BTS ended up finding themselves on the top 100 year-end charts on their own, whether it was Sia or Halsey and definitely the Chainsmokers and whatnot. And so, yeah, artistic creative collaborations are a must. But what we're seeing more and more are collaborations um, on the commercial side, the business side. Um, If you look at the top Korean acts, although they found tremendous success uh, as independents going international, to go to that next level, to go to that Champions League, to go number one on Billboard or to get on those right TV shows, be it late night or early morning shows in the U.S. and getting radio airplay, um, that involves working with a major label 
be it Sony, Universal, and Warner. And so a lot of the top Korean music acts have found ways to collaborate on their terms as independents, but working hand in hand with major labels to become um, global superstars. And so, for instance, uh, you know, Super M, which has been touted and dubbed as the Avengers of K-pop. That's their agency's words, not mine. But it's it's true. I mean, they they cherry picked you know, some of the leading top members of the various boy bands at SM Entertainment created Super M. Uh, they work with Capital Music in the U.S. And lo and behold, they debut number one on Billboard. BTS uh, works very closely with Sony. And when they linked up for their previous album releases, that's when they started going number one and were all over radio. Um, and then, you know, right now, one of the top girl bands twice affiliated with Universal Music, Blackpink affiliated with the Universal Music. And so and again, a lot of these top acts are now being represented by top talent agencies. And that's one of probably the reasons why you're starting to see K-pop acts performing and headlining at places like Coachella or doing world tours. And so collaborations, whether it's on a creative or commercial or business level, is another reason why. Um, K-pop has been elevated to go global. So this idea of transmedia marketing is something that came up in the Music Ally piece that you were featured in recently. And it's about telling character arcs, essentially, from, of different band members of a certain act and having them weave through, you know, albums and Twitter posts and, you know, music videos that they put out. And having that be kind of like a kind of an all joining theme throughout, uh, like kind of like a chronolo- chronology of each band member or the band uh, total. That's a really amazing way to look at kind of an artist's brand. And so I was, I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. And is that something that you think other markets have an appetite for outside of K-pop? In that particular article that you're referring to, I was interviewed and quoted in that. But that particular concept, that idea did not come from me. Credit where credit's due. Uh, That was extremely eloquently stated and laid out by others in the Korean music industry. I believe part of it came from um, uh, those from the music associations, as well as I think one of the major labels, I think it was maybe Warner, but it was extremely um, well stated and well thought out. And, and it's, it's spot on. It nailed it. Um, this idea of transmedia, you know, international marketing. Um, I mean, there are those who think it's uniquely exclusive Korean. I don't think so at all. I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned going both ways, east to west, west to east. And, and this is a typical thing where um, I think in many ways, um, Fans have almost kind of uh, collaborate with labels in terms of A&R, in terms of development of these artists, because they feel that they have some stake in the success of their favorite artists from, you know, the early stages to the stadium stages. And one of the things that... um, I find myself probably studying more than appreciating is um, the fan interaction between artists, the management companies and the fan communities. Uh, K-pop would not be as big as it is if it wasn't for the fans. I mean, that's pretty obvious. But what these fans do is above and beyond anything I've seen in Western markets. Um, It's not just, you know, clicking a like and posting a comment saying, oh, I love you. It goes way more, way beyond, way deeper than that. 
Um, for one thing, the artists, I mean, it almost feels like they put themselves kind of in a uh, Truman Show type of situation where if you want to, it almost feels like you could follow and hang out and watch and be next to your favorite star 24-7, 365. It's not true, but it feels like it because you get not only access to their onstage performances, their backstage highlights, but more importantly, their offstage moments where um, the artists are communicating often directly with their fans. And so the fans feel um, in, you know, a, a close connection that you don't see often necessarily with Western acts. Uh, the other thing is what these fan clubs do to promote and market the success of their favorite acts. In some ways, they've kind of almost benched music labels, marketing and promotion departments because they do all the heavy lifting. And what I mean by that is, you know, everything from like translating the lyrics from the moment it comes out or translating news articles, rumor, gossip, facts, highlights, birthdays, whatever, into various languages. These fan clubs will actually pay for huge billboards and subways to even Times Square to celebrate a milestone or celebrate a birthday. I don't know of any record label that would throw that kind of money around to buy ads at Times Square. That's not cheap. And some of them, I mean, they have literally bought out entire city skylines <laughs> to do like massive birthday celebrations for their favorite artists. I'm like, wow, this is like Fourth of July for like one four member boy band, dude. But, you know, it is what it is. And, you know, um, the connection that these fans have in many ways when a new um, release is put out there. Korea is really fascinating in the sense that as digitally savvy and as digitally centric and digitally focused as the music market is, physical still sells and sells really, really well. And the reason being is, is that um, buying a physical CD is not buying music. You're buying merchandise and more importantly, you're buying a vote. So when a new release comes out, hardcore fans will buy the CD to drive up the chart ranking to go for the all kill. And some of these boy bands and girl bands are kind of smart. When they put out a new CD, it's not just one version, not one cover. If you got four dudes, five dudes, 12 dudes in your band, you come out with 12 different covers, <laughs> 12 different versions. But regardless, um, CDs are just these beautifully elaborate packages where, you know, back in the day you bought a CD that happened to have a booklet. Now you feel like you're buying this glorious, uh, shiny, glossy photo book that just happens to have a CD. Um, and, you know, Koreans have gotten very innovative on how to push CD sales, similar to kind of like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Fans will buy multiple copies for that golden ticket, which could be like a special piece of merchandise or a signed copy or a concert ticket or something. And so there's this incentive to just buy more CDs. And so um, it's great that, uh, you know, both digital and physical have found ways to um, be uh, very vibrant in, in the Korean music market. That just for reference, that quote from uh, with transmedia marketing, it's from Lee Song Im, director of international business operations at Event Market. Yep. So, yeah, he hit it. He nailed it. He was spot on. There's no way I could even say it better than him. But it's actually true. I mean, the, the, the way fans across borders um, across time zones, across nationalities have really made this marketing transnational is impressive. And then also you uh, mentioned this idea of 
stories and characters behind these boy bands and each member. Um, for a lot of the top boy bands, uh, the image, the name, the character, even the color, hair color, outfit color is very pre-planned, pre-scripted, predetermined because um, the boy band in many ways is uh, it's a concept and each member often has a role to play. Whether it's the the young one, the leader, the bad boy, you know, uh, the rapper, whatever, the dancer, they each have a role to play and fans buy into the story. They buy into the optic, they buy into the narrative. And um, it's fascinating to watch how um, these storylines and these characters and more importantly, these personalities of these artists evolve over time. Um, and for whatever reason, it, it seems to work. And yeah, I mean, often, you know, when you look at the boy band, you look at their nicknames and you wonder like, wow, they, this guy's like sun, moon, earth, you know, it's, it is what it is. But, um, you know, I look, I, I'm a middle-aged man. So, you know, for me to say, oh, I get it. It resonates. That, that would just me be straight up lying, but I understand why it works and how it's successful. And it's something that clicks with a lot of fans, younger fans. And that's what really, you know, um, becomes the clicks that drive up the chart success. You mentioned the One Million Dance Studio and the, the TikTok videos that play such a huge part now um, in this business. I wonder if we could kind of like take another step forward and obviously with all the news going on with, you know, countries starting to want to ban or maybe already have banned TikTok, what does a post TikTok world look like to you? Um, and not necessarily platform-wise, of course, we know about Instagram Reels or Triller or Byte, you know, a lot of kind of similar applications that kind of emulate this short-form video. Do you see short-form video of the 15 seconds or less flavor as more of like a blessing or curse when it comes to an artist and their 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 manner of going about growing a fan base? I don't know if this opinion or assessment will age you or me, but when I look at TikTok, what I see is that could have been, should have been Vine on Twitter. Imagine what had happened if Vine and Twitter had just stuck with it. Um, but for some reason, you know, TikTok connected, exploded, and has become this global phenomena, this pop culture, you know, sensation. And conceptually, it's really not different from Vine. In fact, a lot of the biggest TikTok stars originally got their start on Vine. Um, maybe because maybe the Vine videos were too short, I don't know, but something happened that took this idea short form videos and took it to a whole nother level. Um, I think especially in this day and age, um, due to the COVID pandemic, it's obviously getting harder and harder to shoot music videos, elaborate, epic music videos. But what's great is there's so many people who have so much time on their hands who are bored and want to have fun they're creating the videos for the artists. And so um, it's become this stress release and um, this sort of, um, you know, don't worry, be happy platform. And I, I think it's awesome. It's addictive. I love it. Um, but I think that uh, short form video is here to stay. And, you know, whether it's in the form of TikTok, certain challengers, maybe even successors, be a triller, or, you know, even now when I when I go on to Spotify and I check out Spotify Canvas, where now songs have the ability to have looping, I think, eight to 10 second videos, it just makes the music experience um, 
more dynamic, more enjoyable, more multi-sensory. And so I think moving forward, this idea of audio streaming and video streaming are no longer going to be two different silos or two different tracks. I think the convergence of those two experiences are going to um, converge and and become one and the same. And so short firm, I think, is here to stay. But with technology, there's always something new every two years. I always feel like I have to hit the reset button. But, you know, that's what makes working in the music industry so fun. Just when you think you got it, you figured it out. You got to throw the playbook away and start over. I want to shift now to like a, a larger theme of just kind of the culture in general of, of K-pop. You touched upon this earlier about language, about how English is very strategically used in a lot of lyrics. I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are in terms of kind of the overall influence of language. Like you talked a little bit about the metadata part, but in terms of from the audience side of things, uh, you know, there was a time, you know, when I was younger that if something was subtitled in a, in a movie or TV show, like no one was watching it. I don't know if that's a distinctly American um, attitude, but I even feel like here in the States that has largely gone away. Is there some kind of, um, I guess, just larger appreciation, do you feel like, from a, from an international audience when it comes to, you know, media and content that are outside of their own language and, and kind of lifestyle? And has that, do you feel like that has some effect on K-pop success over the past couple decades? I, I definitely think so. Um, I was like you. I mean, I think in America, um, there was often an aversion to subtitles. And I think uh, the Academy Award winning director Bong Joon-ho credit props for, you know, pulling down a bunch of trophies at the Academy Awards. But he said something absolutely brilliant and poignant when he said, once you conquer that one inch wall of subtitles, it opens a whole new world to you. And I think that's definitely true. But like, you know, when you go to Europe or when you go to Latin America and when you go to Asia, um, people are used to subtitles. And so it's not a big deal. And so I think once people understand and realize and appreciate the world is not USA, USA, then it becomes a whole different conversation. Um, and I, I think what's helped sort of open the gateways, open the doors, um, open the pathways for the success of K-pop actually had to do with, for instance, the success of Latin music where having songs in non-English become mainstream, I think just um, acclimated people in America, for instance, to become more comfortable with foreign languages. Um, I look peripherally at the success of TV shows like Lost or Heroes, where it just became normal to hear non-English languages spoken casually, comfortably, and fluently. And, you know, when people realized, oh, that's a character speaking Japanese on Heroes or uh, that's those are characters on Lost that speak Korean. People, I think, psychologically just got more comfortable with the idea that um, shows that they like entertaining experiences they were into were multilingual. And I think, you know, um, coming out with an 100 percent Korean song is not easy to absorb and swallow for uh, first, you know, a newcomer. But the moment you sprinkle it with English and people kind of recognize it and appreciate it and respect it, hey, this song's got a good beat. It's got a good hook. Oh, this lyric, it's kind of catchy. I like it. Then they start easing themselves into, oh, this is really, really interesting. Um, and I think that when it comes to the success of K-pop, 
you know, in the early days when we were bringing Korean music artists to the U.S., you know, often they would meet with U.S. music executives and they would always, not even often, always say, in order to break in America, you have to sing 100% in English. That's the only way to do it. Obviously, I didn't think so. And I, I grew up in the States. I was born in the States. I got schooled in the States. And I did not believe that was true. I did not believe that was the case because, again, I looked to the success of and the inspiration behind Latin music. And, you know, a lot of artists that I work with or had the pleasure of just being fans of, you know, all struggled with do I have to break the major international markets just singing 100 percent in English? And then what I did is I took a step back and I looked at the success of French artists, many of them electronic artists. And, you know, yeah, they did sing in English and um, they mixed it up with French and it sounded super cool and sexy. I was like, oh, this works. Um, and so what I began to realize is that if the artist spoke English, regardless of accents, because I always told Korean acts, you know what, some people find accents really sexy. So your Korean accent that you might be embarrassed Someone overseas might think it's like cool and sexy, like an Italian speaking English or French speaking English. So go with it. Roll with it. Just just go for it. Um, so I, I, I made it very clear that um, when you do interviews, at the very least, you should try to speak English. And, you know, if you trip, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to say what you want to say. And people are often very forgiving and very open minded about it. And you know what? They became comfortable. But the biggest thing I did the sort of the, the icebreaker, the stress tests um, that I often use to kind of help Korean music artists that I work with feel more comfortable is I'm a huge fan of the Icelandic band Sigurus, and I would play music from Sigurus, and it's great music. And they were like, oh, wow, this is really good. Wow, what are they singing in? Is this Icelandic? I'm like, no, it's a language they just completely made up. But the the lyrics the cold vocals it's 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 like an instrumental and i said some people out there a lot of people out there even though they don't understand korean you are their cigarettes even though they don't understand what you're singing or what you're saying it just sounds good it sounds cool it sounds you know awesome and if you sprinkle a little english in there to keep them grounded and hooked and whatnot all the better but once i play them cigarettes then they're they their sort of inhibitions go away. And I said, look, the most important thing is make great music language. You know what? It's, it's just another instrument track. Make sure it works because it's better to have it come out beautifully in Korean or Chinese or Japanese than garbled and clumsy tripping over English pronunciation that you're not comfortable with. Just, you know, do what you feel is best. But again, a little bit of English to kind of uh, cross over and then more importantly, um, trying to talk about the songs in some way, shape or form in English in an interview conversational standpoint. And uh, yeah, usually if the artists drink a little bit after the show or before an interview, <laughs> that helps loosen them up as well. <laughs> sure. So this next one, I don't I don't even know how much of a question there is in here, but I'm sure you have uh, some thoughts on it. I'm curious what genre even means in K-pop. Uh, I've always experienced it as a, a genre in itself because it its verse will sound like an acoustic unplugged set and then the pre-chorus is going to sound like an EDM track and then the chorus hits you with like a, a classic kind of pop arrangement musically. And it's it's one of the reasons I think a lot of people love the genre so much is it doesn't feel caged into a certain kind of sonic profile, if you will. I don't know what the question is, but I, I just think it's it's served itself so well. And especially with young people, you know, after the, the post iPod generation, 
Any thoughts on kind of where do you see that going in the future? You know, will Axe start to maybe focus in on one to evolve at all or maybe just keep that going even just at a more wider pace? Um, just curious what your thoughts are on that. You know, actually, that's a great question, even though you said it's not a question. It's actually <laughs> a great question. It's a question I often get a lot. And usually it's a source of, um, frankly, arguments. There are a lot of people who think they know what K-pop is. And, I, you know, I let them have their say. But then I have to kind of kind of remind them of the fact that um, K-pop is Korean pop music. And the reality is, is that I think most people assume that K-pop equals teen idol dance music. And that's it. If the stereotype is it's teen idol dance music. And that's where I beg to differ. And that's where I sort of, um, you know, uh, go off the rails a little bit. And what I mean by that is. It's basically what's considered popular at some moment in time. And when you look at the U.S. pop charts, more often than not, most of the songs on the pop charts happen to be hip hop, maybe a little bit of electronic country music and sometimes a rock act. Pop is not a style. Pop is a business model. Pop is a matrix of success. And I would like to think the same is true with K-pop, Korean pop music that it's not a genre. It just happens to be a stamp that this is popular music from Korea. And one of the interesting things, and you you alluded to it, is the fact that um, K-pop doesn't have necessarily a set style. It feels like it's a mix of a lot of familiar things and yet feels fresh. Uh, for me, the easiest analogy that, um, thank God, ends a lot of arguments and leads to drinks and soju and beer and a great night is I use the analogy that K-pop is like sonic bibimbap. Bibimbap is a very popular Korean dish. For those of you who don't know what it is, I highly recommend you go out and eat some, order some, have it delivered to your home. But what it is, is it's essentially a, um, a rice dish, whether it's steamed or whether it's fried or whether it's plain. And um, bibimbap is a mix of different um, vegetables and meats and all sorts of good side dishes all mixed up in one you recognize each of the elements each of the ingredients and i look at it as as different genres but yet when you mix it up and you throw a little secret sauce on it a spicy sauce even better all of a sudden all these very common familiar elements become new and fresh and hence bibimbap is a korean dish and k-pop is a korean music style where you recognize all the little different elements individually but when combined together with a secret socks all mixed up in some manner, it somehow becomes uniquely Korean. And so for me, that's the easiest way to kind of come to terms with what my I, my feeling of hip hop is, is that uh, not hip hop, but K-pop. It's got elements of hip hop, a little bit of acoustic sometimes, rock, electronic dance music. Um, but the reality is, is that there's a little bit of something for everyone. And um, for me, I see, you know, a ballad, is being K-pop, a dance track being K-pop, a rock act with some, you know, electronic elements all being K-pop. It just, like I said, you know, Eminem, U2, Rihanna, they're all pop acts. And I would like to think that Korean rock acts, electronic DJs, hip-hop MCs can all fit in that spectrum of K-pop. And, you know, the reality is if you look at a lot of these K-pop boy bands and girl bands, you always got the singer who can hit all the high notes and you always got the rapper. So there's a good diverse range 
of people who can just nail it on the mic and kill it on stage. This idea of activism and, and a political stance that K-pop fans um, have taken um, recently. Uh, one example being a lot of um, anti-Black Lives Matter movements happening online on, on social media and K-pop fans um, spamming a lot of these comments with, uh, you know, K-pop stars, you know, dancing just to try to drown out, um, you know, these kind of anti-humanistic kind of movements online was really interesting for, I think, a lot of people because it was the first time we saw it, the the fervor of a fandom kind of used in kind of like a arena outside of just the music. And I'm just kind of curious, uh, do you see that becoming a thing where the fandoms themselves start to kind of have their own voice uh, in and of themselves and how kind of that will evolve in the future? I thought the fan activation when it came to standing up for on behalf of Black Lives Matter was absolutely genius in the sense they drowned out dumb with dumber. Um, the fact that they <laughs> used and spammed, um, you know, um, just silly, goofy memes to take down some really um, painful, hurtful, spiteful, just, you know, awful commentary on race relations, I thought was sort of a refreshing pushback on something that's very serious and was being dealt with seriously. And um, it's one of these things where it, it's definitely not the beginning of sort of activism by K-pop fans, and I hope it's not the end. But to kind of put it into context, um, you know, I know a lot of K-pop artists are sort of being put on the spot or some of them are even being put on blast as to why are you not standing up and standing, you know, against this political cause. But the reality is it's not a political cause. It's a human rights cause. And as a result, some prominent K-pop artists have stepped up and stepped forward and, you know, made it very loud, very proud and very clear on where they stand when it comes to Black Lives Matters. You had artists like Jay Park or Drunken Tiger or CL, um, you know, artists who are known for, you know, their R&B and their hip hop, you know, being very authentic and um, being very sincere in describing not only the personal, but more importantly, the professional um, you know, influence that black culture has had in their lives from friends to family to just anything and everything that makes them who they are. And that was great because it was genuine. It was real. Um, and then, you know, obviously BTS, you know, not only did they come forward with a message, but they donated a million dollars and then their fans 24 hours later matched that with another million dollars, um, you know, said a lot. Um, but for whatever reason, a lot of other K-pop acts and Korean music companies were perhaps a bit hesitant to stand up for this. And I know some possibly got some backlash from their fans, overseas fans, as to why. No pun intended, this is not a black and white answer because it's very complex. If you understand the history of Korean music um, and politics in Korea, you, I wouldn't say it's right, but you maybe have a better understanding as to why Korean music artists are not always politically active. Um, usually, you know, Korea's history with democracy is not very long relative to, say, the United States. And usually, and back in the day, some of the loudest critics of repressive governments, like in any other country, were artists, were creatives, were musicians. And they, offered, they often paid a huge price 
personally and professionally for standing up for their rights and speaking out, whether it meant being beaten or jailed or having their careers canceled. That was just reality. And over time, um, especially with K-pop becoming bigger and bigger, um, even if an artist tried to take a stand on a political issue, Korean, not just Korean music, but Korean pop culture is the third largest export coming out of Korea. And so if an artist or a celebrity says something that they might feel is right, but offends another country, um, that country, the first thing they often do is impose an industry-wide ban on pop culture products. And so a lot of Korean artists and celebrities have been conditioned and trained Try to avoid taking a political statement, because if you say the wrong thing, it now would only impact you. It impacts the entire industry. So it's just better to shut up and put up and just ignore politics, because not do they not only they do, but often everybody around them pays a huge price for something that um, is said, maybe with all the best intentions, the, the results come out just in all the worst ways. Um, but, you know, given the fact that now K-pop has become global, it's not it's it's not surprising that those who happen to like K-pop happen to often be multicultural people of color who happen to be open minded to other cultures. And so for them to take stands on things like, you know, Black Lives Matters, um, it's not a stretch of the imagination. It feels, if anything, relevant and real and to K-pop fans. And. Again, I mean, this debate I see, I hear about, you know, why is K-pop artists not becoming more active in this space? I, they're new to this because the reality is, is that in Korea, if you take a political stand on something, as right as you might be, um, the risks of losing everything is just too high and too real. But I, I think for a lot of artists, the Black Lives Matter things and um, fighting racism I don't think, and I hope others don't think, is is a political issue. It's a human rights issue. You can't argue with that. Politics, always arguments. With human rights, it's it's pretty straightforward. So I, I hope to see more of it. I hope to see how it evolves. But the reality is it's very much a work in progress, I think. Well said. <laughs> so, uh, so, Bernie, uh, this next thing we have is our speed round. All oh, right. boy. So it's just okay. a couple. We got a handful of headlines uh, that have kind of popped up in the music business recently. <laughs> so we're just going to get your hot takes on it. Uh, and so answers in the form of tweet length, um, or oh. maybe just a couple lines, uh, and then we'll just see what we uh, see what you think on what's can been I, going on. Can I go emoji? <laughs> oh, oh man, we'll have to go video, but maybe we can. No, um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> all right, here we go. Uh, Billie Eilish, Leon Bridges, The Chicks, Common, John Legend, and Billy Porter are just a few of the A-listers who will perform during next week's Democratic National Convention in Milwaukee. This is coming from the uh, National Briefing Newsletter uh, and Billboard. Best ticket in town for the best ticket in politics. I'm all for it. I'm going to tune in. I'm not going to sleep. All right. Next one. Uh, this comes from Music Ally uh, and the Facebook blog. Facebook launches paid live streams and in parentheses, and takes a pop at Apple. Explanation on this one. Uh, Facebook said that we asked Apple to reduce its 30% app store tax or allow us to offer Facebook pay so we could absorb all costs. Um, unfortunately, they dismissed our request, dismissed our both our requests and small to medium-sized businesses will only be paid 70% of their hard-earned revenue. 
I have no idea why it took so long for Facebook to figure out monetization for artists and creators and entrepreneurs <laughs> and to somehow flip the blame onto Apple. Um, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> well said. All right. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Tencent, uh, WeSing is keeping China's karaoke sector thriving. This is from Music Ally, also from Friday, August 14th. Uh, and this is having to do with the karaoke app being so popular with uh, many people in China, with millions of people flocking to KTV venues, and this being the app version of it. Kar- karaoke is the guilty pleasure everybody loves. Deal with it, embrace it, love it. And this is just a sign of things to come. Next one, we got two more left. Warner Music, this also comes from Music Ally uh, from Friday. Uh, Warner Music acquires viral content firm IMGN Media. Warner is smart. They just bought themselves the new generation of DJs. Uh, And then this last, oh no, I'm sorry, I got two more. Trump sets new deadline of 12 November for TikTok US sale. This is also from Music Ally on Friday. I don't understand why he didn't make the deadline election day. Well said. And this one, I'm actually going to chat this over to you. If you can look at this link, Bernie, just want to see what your uh, reaction is to this one. I don't know if you've seen this yet. Oh, boy. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm already sensing trouble on this one. The fact that I clicked through without uh, a, a virus check scares me. Hold on. Um, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Uh, you you know, just sent him a, a Triller link. Oh, that's right. Um, Donald Trump has an official Triller account, verified, no less. Nobody can do it like me. Nobody. Nobody can do it like me. <laughs> this Trump Triller video on his official Triller account. I don't realize, I don't think Trump realizes, I think he's getting punked. <laughs> I think Trump is inadvertently trolling himself on a thriller. <laughs> and uh, we're going to end it on that one. <laughs> um, all right, cool. So thanks so much for chatting with us today, Bernie. Uh, is there a way for people to contact you uh, if they want to get in touch? I think if you Google me, I usually pop up. How Music Charts is written and produced by Jason Hoven and Rutger Rosenborg of Chartmetric. Free Chartmetric accounts are available at chartmetric.com and article links and show notes are at podcast.chartmetric.com. If you want more insights delivered to your inbox when we publish, subscribe to our blog at blog.chartmetric.com. As always, feel free to say hi to us on our socials as well. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.